and welcome to another conversation in Anthropology at Deakin, brought to you with support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University and in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. I'm Timothy Neal, I'm a Senior Research Fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalization, and sitting beside me is my trusty co-host, David Border-Giles, Lecturer in Anthropology at Deakin University. Today, as ever, we're joined by some of our fellow travelers in the anthropological sciences to chart the reaches of life and the universe, as well as just generally have a chat about their work, about the state of the discipline, and what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. So our guests today are two economic anthropologists, uh, Dr. Carly Schuster, a senior lecturer in anthropology at the Australian National University, and Dr. Fabio Mattioli, a lecturer in anthropology at the University of Melbourne. So in very different contexts, they both describe the messy, entangled social worlds and relationships out of which emerges that most abstract of social phenomena, finance capital. So Kali's ethnographic work in Paraguay explores the on-the-ground ramifications of parametric insurance and microcredit and freewheeling frontier capitalism. Her research agenda asks how and under what conditions are people collectively obligated in everyday economic practice? What value systems compel people to knit and ravel these economic interdependencies and with what effects? And Fabio has worked for many years in the Republic of Macedonia, now the Republic of North Macedonia, exploring the social conditions that lead to financial expansion in peripheral and post-socialist cities, especially when connected to illiberal politics. His ethnographic research describes the post-crisis emergence of Macedonia as a space of contradictions and a new frontier for European capital. Carly is the author of the 2015 book, Social Collateral, Women and Microfinance in Paraguay's Smuggling Economy. And Fabio is the author of the, of the forthcoming Illiquidity and Power, the economics of authoritarianism at the margins of Europe. So, welcome to the podcast. Um, it's really nice to have a room full of economic anthropologists. Hooray! <laughs> I'm the odd one out. So, uh, we always start with a nice sort of gentle entry question, because a lot of our listeners are people thinking about getting into anthropology or their graduate students and so on. So, we want to hear about your journey into anthropology. Uh, and feel free to take this as an opportunity to sketch out your career pathways or tell embarrassing stories about your childhood. You know, what made you anthropologists? Well, I started my undergraduate studies having no idea what anthropology was, that it was a discipline, that it was something somebody would study. So I came to it quite late, actually. Started off as a kind of general social science um, undergraduate major, kind of interested in politics, current affairs. Uh, this would have been in the early 2000s. And uh, as a Californian, was very kind of tapped into Latin American politics um, and the kind of role of the United States in Latin America. So it came about that I had a chance to study abroad in Argentina, and this would have been 2003, right in the middle of the largest global default in human history when Argentina's economy collapsed, and I found myself there as a, a political science student um, trying to understand what was happening around me. And I found at the same time, as I was kind of interested in do-goody development projects and kind of local community responses to this kind of world historical event, that the thing that people came up with as a remedy was um, small-scale investment and credit um, for local communities to kind of jumpstart um, kind of local economies. So I was left with this real kind of puzzle that came out of just kind of being there at the right time, which was, okay, so we've got the credit as the problem uh, in this place, and also credit as the solution in this place. And that seems kind of weird and contradictory to me. So I went back to my political science teachers, and they said, yeah, yeah, that's great. Okay, you need a lot of math in order to kind of fully grasp this. So I started with a lot of math. And as I was kind of thinking more and more about this context and what people really cared about, what they were telling me, I realized that listening to the stories about what was happening on the ground in these um, places were much more interesting to me than running regressions on um, kind of poverty indexes and et cetera. So that kicked me off into Anthropologylandia, um, but carrying with me this toolkit from Mathlandia that kind of helped me think about the economy in broader brushstrokes and to think about some of the more kind of systematic um, effects as it were, that language uh, that we would call orthodox economics. So I came to anthropology as an economist, I know, gasp, mm. <laughs> um, and have had to um, kind of fight that impulse ever since. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you sometimes just see numbers and think, oh, I could run a regression. I, I, can, <laughs> I can run more than one regression on this. Carly sees the matrix at all times. <laughs> um, so I gamed anthropology as a reconstructed economist. And I think that that's probably how I ended up in economic anthropology. I'm uh, kind of interested in these same sorts of questions, but with a toolkit that I think is uh, much more interesting than uh, necessarily just applying quantitative methods. Fabio? Look, for me, it was a bit of a different trajectory insofar as I got into anthropology because of samba, really. I was in Paris. Uh, I was an exchange student. Um, I was studying at that point philosophy. And I had been at the Sorbonne for about a semester. And they were all talking about La République and this kind of really boring and old school type of stuff, which I was like, well, have you heard about decolonization? You know, this kind of things. And so I found it not very productive to be there, and I switched to l'HESS, they called it the Tunnel Social, which I don't know if it was something that um, people typically do, but I just felt that that was, you know, I was in Paris, surely that's okay. And so I, I invited myself to the Ecole d'Institut, and um, there I met a professor who was uh, working at the time on issues of public space, from working through the work of Anna Arendt. And, um, and at the very last lesson of the very last course, um, he had this fantastic lecture or discussion about how politics in Brazil is really um, this liminal space is generated as people meet uh, dancing samba on the threshold of the house between public processions and private parties. And I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. You know, this is exactly what I thought about. Anarant had been my uh, focus of study during the uh, undergrad thesis. And so for my master's, I really wanted to think about that. And so... So I went to talk to this professor, Michel Auger, who said, well, I think your ideas are interesting. I would be interested in, in working with you. And then I wrote to my professors in Italy and I said, look, I have this interesting topic. Would you be interested in working with that? Because, you know, there's here other opportunities. And my professor in Italy said, why don't you come back and we talk about it? And I said, that sounds great. The warning bells are ringing. So I take a plane, I fly to Italy, really excited to meet him. And and then I sit down and he goes, oh, Mr. Mattioli, if you want to do a thesis with me, you cannot talk to any other professor ever. And I'm not interested in your topic. So I said, I guess that's the end of my career in philosophy. And I just went back to Paris and I stayed there and enrolled in their master's. And from there, then I went to a few places. I was interested in doing research in public spaces and kind of liminal contexts. And I was going to go to South Africa. But then um, talking to some people, I went to the Balkans and they suggested, why don't you check out Macedonia? Sounds like an interesting place. And, and I just fell in love with the place and with its complexity. And I've been there ever since. I have a follow-up question, mine, but I was also going to say, so we have both, Fabio and I, have been in ska bands and samba bands. Right. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I was playing capoeira at the time as well, so oh, that's okay. probably what you know resonated so much. How in yeah. the world did you not end up a Brazilianist? <laughs> I know, mm. I know. It's kind of ridiculous when you really think about it. But oh, Well, that wasn't my question. Um, my question was going to be about, I, I always really enjoy talking to economic anthropologists um, and sort of, I mean, it feels really important to me in a way that I don't think tracks outside of our little circles necessarily. So I was wondering if you want to say a little bit about, uh, a little bit more about why economic anthropology, why it feels important in this particular moment, um, and especially economic anthropology in 2019, which is a different thing, you know, from economic anthropology in the kind of classical period. Well, I mean, for me, I was in the U.S. while, you know, Trump was being elected. And so in the lead up to the 2016 elections, I was teaching at John Jay, which is a college at the City University of New York, mostly uh, first generation students, often of, uh, uh, you know, working class background or people who are coming to the United States or have just arrived to the United States. Their parents have just immigrated or they themselves have just immigrated. So people who are interested in doing good for themselves, um, who have often complicated backgrounds. 30% um, of my female students had been victims of sexual violences. And, and they're trying to get into the law enforcement system, system or, or some kind of you know, judiciary or this kind of uh, law and order type of view of the world. And so when I was talking to them in 2015, 2016, 
I noticed a sizable shift insofar as before then, all of our conversations were about law and order, were about, you know, doing the right thing, uh, being um, empowering the community, but always through this kind of very classical understanding what it means to do so. But in 2015, 2016, they were all talking about inequality. It was as if suddenly something has changed um, in society and they were very much starting to feel the impact of how the economic landscape has transformed to a level where you could not find anybody who was interested in this kind of centrist, commonsensical politics anymore. They were all veering towards either Trump or Bernie. And those were two names that were never discussed before. And I find it very interesting to observe, but also to to think about and to engage with them into why was that the case, what it meant, and what kind of things can we learn from it. And so for me, economic anthropology and studying that kind of relation between economic transformations and political transformations is really, really crucial at this moment in time, Mm -hmm. a moment when we can't really take for granted anymore most of uh, our life projects. Well, I guess that I came to economic anthropology, um, as I mentioned, as a yeah. kind of student of um, uh, political science and economics. But really, my core interest um, from the beginning was kind of do-goody development and humanitarian aid um, questions. And um, something that sort of I noticed early on, even as an undergraduate, was that in so much of the thinking about development, there was this uh, almost automatic um, slippage from kind of development into kind of questions of economics or markets. So the solutions that seemed viable in pretty much um, every context from um, women's empowerment to um, health issues to environmental concerns, inevitably the most credible solutions turned out to be things related to money and markets. And uh, that seems, you know, when you step back a little bit, quite puzzling, actually. I mean, there's a lot of ways to think about development that don't involve like growing markets. And yet that um, kind of persistence of market-driven solutions in the development conversations seemed like something that was really kind of important to untangle uh, if I wanted to work in that. And I, at the time, I thought that I wanted to work in um, in development and um, you know, work for an NGO or work for a nonprofit, maybe even work for um, the U.S. Uh, Department of State or uh, USAID. Uh, and so the kind of question of economic anthropology was almost a, a kind of a given in the sense that that was the language and the set of concerns that were just overwhelmingly saturating every kind of development context that I was interested in. Um, so that led kind of on to a set of conceptual questions that uh, has driven my work since then, which is you know, like, why is it that on the one hand, um, culture and markets are so persistently separated in all of our analyses um, and our kind of understanding of the way the world works, and yet uh, market-driven solutions are really the kind of dominant ones if we're talking about development. So kind of coming to questions of uh, development studies and anthropology of development, um, the kind of toolkit of economic anthropology seemed especially compelling, and especially as Fabio has uh, mentioned, since uh, questions of inequality have really kind of driven a lot of the most recent conversation about um, about development and growth and um, the life projects that um, people can um, foresee and envision and hope for. So um, I think that that nexus between um, development, poverty, aid on the one hand, and money and markets um, is a really interesting one and one that's um, kind of driven my research. And one that I see um, both as a kind of important intellectual questions for me, but also like real questions in the sense that like these are things that people talk about all the time. And you can pick up um, the Financial Times or The Economist or your daily newspaper, and these are conflations or um, kind of associations that um, really drive a lot of the reporting about international affairs kind of generally. So that's why um, the kind of questions around economic anthropology for me have always been also kind of political and moral and ethical ones. 
both of your research projects seem to kind of center on new financial opportunities and instruments. Uh, and I, so I was wondering about, uh, are these promises of enrichment a promising site for anthropologists? And also what makes them a frustrating site, possibly? Yes, people are, this promise of enrichment seems kind of compelling, like people are really activated. But is it also, is it both promising for you and uh, frustrating? Well, what's frustrating for me is the fact that there are not true in most of the cases and so they remain promises that are unfulfilled and sometimes purposefully so and so you know that is sometimes very frustrating to observe um, and to talk about because it feels like you're always chronicling this endless kind of self-defeating situation but for me you know, unlike Carly, in a way, for me, coming to economic anthropology was a way to stop talking about some of these kind of anthropological issues that I don't necessarily enjoy discussing or being part of. And so for me, talking about culture is not really very interesting. And so, you know, it's not very... Audible gasps. <laughs> I am trying to think about... Clutching pearls. <laughs> exactly. Um, I am really, you know, and, and I understand there's people who enjoy doing that and, and love um, having that kind of approach to the world. But for me, is really trying to think about processes in a material sense. And, you know, that have, of course, subjective elements, existential issues, and so on and so forth. But economic anthropologists seem to get at those issues in a much more direct way. And so... There is a sense in which it is because it talks about this sort of magical promises and at the same time about very concrete processes whereby people are starving, dying, or being screwed over in all sorts of ways that I thought economic anthropology had a specific angle to it. The other interesting thing about economic anthropology here was that it kind of allowed you to de-essentialize the technical solutions. And here's where I think a lot of what you were mentioning before, Carly, was really, really to the point. Um, there is a tendency to see finance as a thing or as maybe not a thing, but a logic that in and of itself does stuff. Mm. And, you know, there is a sense where it can be performative, but at the end of the day, it's always people who do things. And... You know, they do it in collaboration with the world around them, but it's still them and about them. And so there is a sense where thinking that by just having a new technical tool, you can solve all these problems is the wrong way to look at it. And so by having an economic anthropological look that is grounded in ethnography, but also looks at this kind of broader issues, you're really trying to demystify the idea that you can actually fix everything by having a new app, a blockchain technology or something like that, mm -hmm. right? You need a different kind of structural set of relations to make it work. And so that is really, really exciting for me. And it's also an avenue to stop being very pornographic about what we do, right? And having that kind of observational approach and instead identifying things that could be done if there is enough political support or will. When these novel technologies come along, though, like blockchain, are you suddenly like, "Ooh, I need to get, I need to, I need, <laughs> I need to get on this"? <laughs> are you chasing? Is is there a temptation to chase the innovations? I guess is what. I'm well, saying. my next project is about innovation, so right. funny you should ask that. Um, I mean, it's exciting, right? You see mm -hmm. people being excited about it, and for a second you think, "Wow, what if this is the thing that is really going to change?" Um, poverty or, or, or some of the challenges we have and then you look into it and you're like oh no actually <laughs> uh, that's not really happening and so for me it's it's you know it's interesting to observe the new ways in which a lot of the older relations get reconfigured and and sometimes change a bit but but I think it's not necessarily with that kind of hope that, I guess, uh, for me at least, I, I get into these new issues. It's more like, why would you think that a new technology would change things that haven't been changed in 100 years? Mm. <laughs> it's that kind of optimism that I find interesting. Uh, maybe because I'm a cynical and dramatic person, <laughs> which I'm realizing only now, you know, surprisingly. Yeah. This is also a therapy session. <laughs> exactly, therapy. Yeah. Um, we always have a box of tissues with us, just in case. Well, because, Carly, your 2015 book and, and, and your work looks at microfinance program, programs in, in Paraguay, and so this seems to have this old and new element as well. That microfinance can often get presented as new, but it also has this very long history. 
Yeah, and I was just, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking that um, these sort of promising narratives in finance um, share a lot of resonance with um, development as this promising narrative of progress that's going to kind of expand opportunities for people who had been uh, hitherto excluded. And you see a lot of kind of crossover between um, these kind of flash new programs that are promising financial inclusion, for example, people who have like previously been unbanked or couldn't get loans or couldn't get insurance or couldn't get land titles uh, to get mortgages, um, suddenly are kind of included into financial systems uh, with the idea that that's a democratizing impulse for kind of spreading the good of markets to people who'd been like previously um, left out. And that was definitely the kind of selling point of microfinance, right? When it first um, really hit the global stage with the Grameen Bank and its visibility um, through a Nobel Peace Prize, which when you hit pause and think about it, you're like, okay, so you got a Nobel Peace Prize for um, giving credit to poor people. Like my bank, when it gives me a credit card, does not get a Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> so like, let's really kind of we may think be about- in that direction. Though. You know, next thing you know, um, like Commonwealth Bank is going to be there receiving a statue, <laughs> uh, saying it's, it's thanks. Um, but this is all to say that um, that kind of idea of seeking new markets, um, at least in the development space, um, that kind of promise, the innovation, the excitement over these new programs is also kind of ethicized as a democratizing force. It's kind of expanding markets, but also kind of bringing in people who had been excluded, and that's kind of seen as overwhelmingly a good thing. And that uh, feeds into a lot of the um, the enthusiasm, at least in uh, development circles, about these kind of new ideas about uh, financial inclusion. So if microcredit um, has now a quite complex um, what image um, or brand, now that people have seen some of its um, less than appealing effects, especially with the microcredit bust in India, um, related to kind of mass defaults and farmer suicides and um, et cetera. Um, now that we can sort of see the dark underbelly of microfinance, uh, suddenly ping, 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 we can be like, okay, mm -hmm. so what, mm -hmm. what are like the other ways? We can do maybe micro savings. Micro savings are kind of less. <laughs> we need to rebrand. Or, yeah, like rebranding or like, oh, micro franchising. That sounds exciting. Mm -hmm. um, or I'm, micro. I'm, I'm interested already. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm selling it, right? Yeah. I'm selling it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so all that's to say that kind of underneath all of this is um, the notion of um, kind of expanding markets um, to kind of hitherto untapped um, kind of populations, as it were, um, which is seen as exciting. And that's something that anthropologically, like there's long-standing sort of interests, right, and see kind of how new economic processes or how economic processes absorb um, kind of new or different um, sociopolitical contexts. Mm. So um, that's all kind of happening on the ground, as it were. And then um, I'm interested at the same time that there's this, I'm sure you'll be tracking this in your next book, so I look forward to reading it, um, impulse around um, innovation that happens at a kind of more macro scale. And it, I found it really interesting in this most recent research that I've done that even sort of big players in the multinational aid world have had to rebrand themselves as kind of innovators um, or kind of laboratories for finance. So yeah, the kind of capital fund that um, funds programs for the Inter-American Development Bank that had gone by the very sort of like bland acronym FOMIN, now is FOMIN Lab, um, and creates these sort of sandboxes, pilot, so that you can let loose Bitcoin, or you can let loose um, parametric um, crop insurance, or you can let loose um, new types of microfinance that um, are kind of funding new types of businesses and kind of see how they work short term, fast, kind of go to scale. All those sort of logics that you see in, say, Silicon Valley entrepreneurialism are now kind of compelling, at least in a branding sense, at a, at a macro level. So connecting the dots is something that's really interesting for anthropologists to do, to kind of make those scale jumps between, okay, 
So you've got these sort of expanding markets on one hand, and something you can see in daily practice is people suddenly are you know getting new apps on their phones that can do mobile money, and they're getting new financial products that they manage on a daily basis. And then at the macro level, these kind of more systemic changes that are all kind of pointed towards innovation. So it's not just us that are chasing innovation. We're sort of playing catch up to these kind of bigger players that are also kind of branding innovation as something that, uh, or kind of promise, progress, uh, flash new technologies Mm -hmm. as something that's kind of interesting and good and that everyone's excited about at a macro level too. And it seems like that says something about the global reorganization of capital itself that we're living through right now. Uh, You know, so one, one of the questions Tim and I often ask is, what do you think is the future for global capitalism? Not because we ever really expect uh, a succinct answer because it's it's a provocation. It's good to it's good to think with. Except that the two of you working on finance might have an answer. <laughs> you know? So yeah, I'm sort of I'd love to hear your reflections on what these kind of larger pressures are that are, seem to be generating the constant interest in the next big thing. And then also what I love about both of your work is that it's thinking about uh, value from the margins, right? In you know you're not going. I mean, you do go to finance conferences and you do sit with people and nerd out about um, econometrics, but you're also in, in these places that are perceived to be marginal um, and looking at the, at the way that value is, you know, born or squeezed out of those marginal spaces. So what do you think the future of capitalism looks like in the 21st century <laughs> um, and why are the margins so important? Um, my understanding of... Um Eastern Europe is that it has been uh, a laboratory for a lot of the things that we have seen then on a global scale. And so for me, looking at places like Macedonia that are completely small and forgotten on a larger scheme of things is actually very interesting because it allows you to unveil and unravel and understand a lot of the kind of global changes that you see. And so if you think about post-socialism and the kinds of privatization that has been rolled out with a devastating effect on social lives of people throughout Eastern Europe, well, a lot of that has happened in parallel elsewhere, but just in a more sneaky form or later or without the same kind of immediate effects. But over time, you can see a lot of places like Detroit that are actually today as ruined as, um, you know, a perm in the 1990s in Russia. So there's a sense where looking at the margin sometimes allows you to glimpse into the future of the center, unless things change, right? And so for me, um, politically especially, I'm interested very much in the political economy of finance, Um, looking at what happened at the margins of Eastern Europe was a way to think about, hey, you know, there's been 10 years of authoritarian development here, and what is driving that, right? What are the underlying causes? And a lot of cases was, in fact, inequality. I mean, of course, there were all sorts of other racialized and gendered perspectives in there, but um, inequality seemed to be very much correlated with uh, the growth of uh, all sorts of authoritarian tendencies. And so I started thinking, well, if that's what's happening in Eastern Europe, how long before that kind of same politics will become mainstream in the rest of the world? And, you know... I don't want to say that that's actually what's happening, but there seems to be good indications that um, it has become, in fact, acceptable to have a fascist uh, opinion or perspective in places like Italy or, you know, the U.S. even. So there is a sense where the margins are marginal in many senses and screwed up, but also very much vital in their own sense and kind of allows you to see these global transformations. So, you know... If you have to think about what's happening in Macedonia as an indication of the future, well, we are in for a bumpy ride. But I think to come back to the question of innovation, you know, uh, and and to nuance a little bit the cynicism that we talked about before, I mean, it is exciting, right? Sometimes to think that, hey, maybe there is something out there that if we just get it right, we're going to be able to actually use to change the world. And, And that kind of experimentation takes place a lot at the margins. I mean... Think about things like fake news. Now, that's typically not thought of as, as innovation, but those were micro-entrepreneurs who figured out how Facebook algorithm worked, and they used it to generate some kind of value out of nothing. I mean, if that's not innovation, what it is, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And so there is a way in which the way that then played out in the global economy of the election in the U.S. was was a bit weird insofar as those who clicked on those ads were only Trump supporters. They tried with Bernie supporters. It didn't work out. 
Um, but the sense that at the margins there is a capacity, a potential for changing a bit the rules of the games or experimenting because of the different kinds of pressure, I think that's also something very interesting that can be observed there. The question of um, the margins is an interesting one that I think really connects our work, especially because um, Paraguay also in a way as a laboratory for financial experimentation as a kind of historically deregulated economy that um, kind of liberalized and embraced a free market model, not in the 1970s, as you think of with a neoliberal kind of impulse, but in the 1870s, um, after a series of kind of geopolitical or regional conflicts in Latin America. So it has this kind of long history of experimenting with kind of different financial forms. And in a sense, you can kind of preview, as you say, many of the um, kind of economic um, kind of relations and um, forms of extraction that then kind of come home um, in the West, as it were. Um, but I think that kind of beyond that, it's also interesting to think about how some of these processes are um, connected, uh, not just as a kind of temporally, kind of prior to what will happen sort of later um, in more developed markets, um, but also kind of intimately connected um, through some of these economic processes. Um, for example, there's a project I've been working on with um, Sohini Carr at the London School of Economics, who also works on uh, microfinance in India. And it's a project we call Subprime Empire that kind of looks at how subprime lending um, articulates both within, um, say, kind of housing markets in the United States, but also microfinance uh, in the global south. And on the one hand, you sort of see homeowners who are kind of much maligned and kind of cast as morally dubious for taking on mortgages that they can't afford and um, being sort of duped into making bad financial decisions, and then that ramifying out to kind of terrible financial consequences globally. And then on the other hand, um, same kind of poor borrowers in the global south in places like India and Paraguay who um, are given the positive moral valence of being women entrepreneurs who are kind of carrying their families along and starting small businesses and uh, improving their domestic economies. Uh, and really, it's the same type of lending when you kind of really get to it, um, sort of take, making risky investments in people who would otherwise not qualify uh, for standard loans. And um, what we kind of found is that, especially in the microfinance case, um, a lot of that sort of moral work to make microfinance borrowers appealing um, and creditworthy takes place through particular brokers and agents and regional banks that work really hard to kind of package and create financial products that can reach those markets and also are kind of legible um, and profitable um, within regional kind of financial uh, markets. And that often is a very regional phenomenon that happens in the periphery, as you're saying, with its kind of own logics and its own kind of cultural historical context for um, kind of creating economic dynamics uh, in those places. But that, that then connects to pools of capital in the same way that kind of subprime lending in the United States connects to pools of capital. So thinking of these kind of types of lending, not as um, sort of one being development and the other being um, kind of subprime um, kind of financial speculation in the global north, but rather as connected phenomenon that are kind of about how debt works kind of globally right now. So thinking not really about the margins as margins, but rather as co-constituting or being kind of entangled um, with financial processes uh, more broadly. And it's only sort of really through careful ethnographic work of you know talking with those brokers, talking with the borrowers, following through like how those contracts are made, the financial labor that goes into it, like how do you work to make these things happen, what sort of paperwork is involved, how are those meetings run, uh, what does this look like in terms of debt collection, uh, and how do you sort of make turn that into an ethical project of good kind of development for um, empowered women. Um, and that's it's only through that kind of ethnographic lens that you can see this as a global project of subprime empire. Uh, it's not from the kind of logics themselves, but rather through that careful work and granular analysis that you can see the connections. I'd like to double back actually to learn more about uh, your case study, Fabio, and the and Macedonia, now the Republic of North Macedonia, because as you you've written about. It became a place of refuge or kind of perceived refuge at a particular moment for the frightened economic capital of Europe to kind of flee to. So just kind of give us a, a little bit of a view of that storyline and, and why, in your view, it, it led to uh, authoritarianism. 
because it's not it's not a context. I mean, this is part of the the, the problem of margins. It's not a context that I think I or many of our listeners would probably know that story. Well, in a sense, it's um, a story that has to do with how Eastern Europe changed um, after the 90s. And so in the 70s, really, a place like Yugoslavia was one of the most coveted um, countries, space, and passports, in fact, in the world, because it was able to be both in relation to the West and to the East, this kind of socialism that had a market component that was able to then be a part of negotiations at the level of the UN, at the level of international loans, at the level of arm deals, at the level of, you know, all sorts of geopolitical and strategic processes. And so you had a country that was really at the core of the global economy and geopolitics, that then in the 90s, because of you know economic crisis and then political uh, disruptions, became sort of nothing. A periphery of Europe within which Macedonia was a periphery nested within layers of peripheries. And so suddenly you have this kind of place forgotten that nobody knows anymore about or that for 20 years got stuck or buried into the global consciousness and resurfaced in uh, really 2008 and 9 because um, the rest of the world was going through a very significant period of crisis. And so suddenly, you know, if you were um, at Citibank or Deutsche Bank, you couldn't really invest anymore in the same kind of speculative ventures in, say, Greece or in Spain or in Ireland or even the U.S. real estate market. So for you, um, throwing 200 million, say, to the Macedonian state, a state that had low debt, that had been opening up and supposedly implementing all these sorts of neoliberal um, kind of policies, was, was easy and risk-free virtually. So that's part of the story. It's a, it's a very strange conjuncture where suddenly being at the periphery and being so screwed up in many other ways helps you to actually become attractive for international capital. But if you look at it from the perspective of Macedonians themselves, the ability of suddenly being seen, being part of those conversations and those flows of capital has a completely different value. It's a moment of vindication. And suddenly the ability of being able to capture part of that global value, they've been excluded for such a long time. And so even if some of these processes didn't take the form that typically they should be taking in, say, uh, you know, the theories of how loans should work or how capital should be productively used, a lot of Macedonians were okay with it, even if they had to resort to scams, because it still meant affirming themselves on the global scale and scamming some things out of the global capital that had kind of fried them for so long. Now, was that any kind of positive result out of that? <laughs> Uh, it's a question, and certainly there was a lot for oligarchs who were able to then be at the center of this series of loans and economic transactions, because ultimately the kind of economic development that took place in Macedonia wasn't enough to entice uh, a free access to international capital. So some capital came in, but never quite enough to be accessible to everybody. And so those who found themselves at the core of those kinds of conversations, loans and economic transactions found themselves with enormous power to really dictate the destiny of the population. And that's why authoritarianism became a viable option. Just it allowed very few people to control a lot of power thanks to the way in which finance entered and expanded in the country. So something I'm curious about is the social life of unpaid debts. So debts are a form of social obligation. They bind us to people... Uh, but as anthropologists, we all know that they're not easily contained. A debt can live on socially, even if it's been paid off financially. So, Carly, you've written uh, about some of this in relationship to the debts of the dead. And Fabio, you've explored this in relationship to in-kind payments or compensatia. Uh, so, big question, but maybe a good place to begin is, what does unpaid debt do? What does unpaid debt do? Well, I can answer that through the lens of microfinance, which is where I kind of started um, kind of asking that set of questions, especially uh, since in the microcredit groups that I was studying with and following and uh, sharing kind of economic uh, lives with was um, in collective indebtedness, um, group loans to women who 
collectively take out um, a sum of money and are collectively uh, obligated to pay it back. And it's parsed out um, individually so that every woman in the group gets her own kind of little chunk of money to be able to invest. Um, but every week when they pay it back to uh, the microfinance lender, it comes back as a group and the, um, the bank never knows um, really kind of who's actually paid and who hasn't. It's up to the group itself to manage all of those kind of internal dynamics and internal internal accounting. So there's a lot of reasons why debts go unpaid in general in those sort of contexts. If somebody gets sick or if somebody, um, thinking with scams, um, kind of makes off with pots of money and um, kind of gets out of town or diverts uh, money for various reasons or their business isn't going well, um, individually, any kind of one member of the group might run into financial trouble or create financial trouble and uh, not pay. So those debts kind of live on within the group um, itself, and it's up to the group to um, kind of figure out a way to pay. In fact, that's the sort of animating logic of social collateral in microfinance, that it's kind of cheaper for the bank to offload that risk onto the borrowers themselves than to send a credit counselor out to assess the creditworthiness of each one of those members who might not be creditworthy on her own or they might not have enough data um, to fully assess it. And that would be quite expensive, right, for to kind of person by person do that kind of credit analysis. So offload that work onto the group. And uh, because there's an, a gendered component to this as well, there's the kind of thinking that women are especially adept at this kind of management because uh, women are... Uh, in scare quotes, naturally um, considered more kind of social, more caring, um, more obligated, more embedded within kinship networks, kind of feel those bonds of kind of care, obligation, and affect more intensely, and therefore are kind of better at working those internal dynamics. So those unpaid debts, um, on the one hand, are seen as a kind of a natural, in scare quotes, again, outgrowth of these feminized economies of borrowing and the collective indebtedness that goes into that. Uh, in that uh, analysis of the debts of the dead, that's the sort of extreme case where an absent member who is kind of absent um, because they have died uh, have left the debt with the group and that sort of lives on um, within the context of social collateral. And one of the things that I sort of do in my, um, my research on microfinance is unpick um, how those animating logics of what is kind of natural about um, the feminine qualities of borrowers um, that would make that social collateral stick, as it were, since it's such a fundamental part of this technology and what the microfinance industry is sort of banking on. And what I found in my research is that, curiously, it's actually much of the kind of financial tool itself of microfinance that produces the very kind of co feminized collective indebtedness that they kind of think that they find and bank on, um, kind of out there in the wild, as it were, um, in these uh, informal economies. So everything from um, the kind of collective credit score that the group gets uh, and that each woman is sort of responsible for that produces uh, these bonds of obligation to group meetings um, that offload this responsibility onto um, borrowers who might have kind of other jobs with their obligations, other things they'd rather be doing, but are kind of compelled to kind of manage and create interdependencies among them in order to um, manage these loans. So that, is, in a sense, the loans themselves are producing the very kind of feminized social collateral that the bank thinks is the natural animating force of its lending product. Mm -hmm. So anthropology can kind of help us, economic anthropology can help us kind of untangle some of the sociocultural dynamics that are creating the financial tools um, that then um, come to kind of have force, as it were, um, or kind of take hold um, in these places. So those unpaid debts um, are actually kind of a feature of uh, the technology itself, as it were, rather than a bug. Um, so, and, and part of the kind of the logic, especially the gendered logic that makes microfinance work. In my case, I think that unpaid debts are something that give those who owe uh, power over those who are owed. And so it's a slightly different case in insofar as, to answer your question in more broader sense, it depends who is in debt and who owes to whom. If you're a bank and you owe a lot of money to the U.S. government, you can negotiate about it. If you are somebody like me or you, you probably can't. And so depending on who owes to whom really changes completely the dynamic of unpaid debt. And so 
My case was one that was extremely hierarchical, so you didn't have this sort of risk-sharing, um, almost horizontal uh, type of relations. It was much more one where you had uh, contractors who would then subcontract somebody else and then not pay them back. Mm-hmm. And, and they could do that because they had the political infrastructure to be able to force others to lend them credit. Now, there is a way in which a lot of this kind of negotiations happen daily at the global level when you have things like trade credits or, or unpaid debt between countries. And so then there's all sorts of political negotiations that have to go into making sure that those kinds of debts are paid. And so really, you know, depending on where the power dy- or what kind of power dynamic is at play there, then I think the dynamic of debt changes significantly. I remember we were talking about this yesterday, Fabio, and uh, one of us described it as a sort of inverted pyramid scheme. Uh, inver- right. Inverted pyramid scheme, yeah. where it's just unpaid obligations all the way down. Right. Yeah. 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 But it's interesting that in both of those cases, you know, I think about um, David Harvey describes the credit system as this this institution that lends some elasticity to uh, to capital, and kind of in both of these cases, it seems like it's a it's a translation matrix where it turns quantified capital. You know, with a set of metrics and um, calculuses into a uh, into a social calculus, one way or another. So even though the debt is working in kind of an inverted sense in one case from the other, they both translate financial capital into social capital, one way or another. Yeah, very much so. I mean, to an extent where, in my case at least, um, the form what kept that kind of unpaid debt functional was mm-hmm. the ability of exploiting workers um, bottom line and essentially their labor and so mm. as long as that kind of exploitation was going then you know the rubble wouldn't wouldn't hit the road so mm. to speak um, in other cases it might be a different kind of dynamic that allows then global financial processes to translate into social ones mm. i'm aware too that uh, we in talking about finance we we're often we're often risking reifying the lenses of finance right and so you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about these kind of specific regimes. Um, but we're also because we're talking about the margins, we're talking about frontiers between capital and non-capital. Uh, you know, these kind of points of of traction or tension between the market and the non-market. So I want to ask you about the importance of non-market economies, or at least non-market or quasi-market practices in both of your both of your sites. And you know, what are they doing? And are they resisting capital? Are they feeding capital? This project on insurance has been a, uh, a really interesting case of thinking about not so much kind of not market versus non-market, but the sort of proliferation of all sorts of different ways of thinking about risk and uncertainty. And um, I should start by noting that that's something that uh, the insurance industry itself is super interested in. And one thing that really kind of made me think, like hit pause and think in this project that's now I'm looking at in um, this case at a super boutique, like really weird um, little insurance scheme that is called parametric or index insurance for climate catastrophes. So um, in a nutshell, um, instead of kind of insuring your crop, um, your little sesame crop in Paraguay, and if disaster strikes, someone has to troop out there and see kind of how much sesame you lost. Um, instead, you can create a product that looks a little bit more like a derivative, actually, um, that speculates on the weather itself. So it kind of pays out or doesn't pay out based on climate events, say rainfall or temperature data that's collected by satellites and uh, weather stations uh, remotely. And based on kind of where you are in a grid square, will kind of pay out based on those climate catastrophes. So that all seems like super technical, right? Like we're like way into the most calculative, um, abstract, kind of out there models of risk in its most financialized mode. Uh, and so I was really kind of surprised when I was conducting this research that uh, the insurance industry itself is really kind of interested in the experience of risk by um, kind of local people, and partly because um, they know that their models are really kind of incomplete. In fact, the insurance industry even has a, a kind of a concept or a phrase to talk about this. They call it basis risk, which is the risk that the kind of world that the model or that the satellites or the weather stations describes doesn't actually fit with the world that's on the ground that people kind of experience. So the better that they can do at kind of minimizing that basis risk, uh, the better sort of their insurance model and their actuarial models are. 
So uh, I find myself kind of often kind of going to meetings with and kind of giving feedback and reporting back to uh, the Central Bank of Paraguay and the regulators who are really interested in kind of what the actual effect of these um, these new products are and how they work and kind of protecting consumers and minimizing basis risk, as it were, talking with the insurance company because um, they want to know if their model actually is working and if people are kind of experiencing weather and experiencing um, kind of crop health and experiencing crop yield um, in a way that sort of makes sense with their models. And of course, with the insurance industry, that's all with the kind of the idea of, you know, making better insurance, right? So there's a speculative mode in that as well. But the kind of the idea that there's other ways of dealing with risk or other ways of dealing with uncertainty is certainly something that's very interesting um, to them. I'll sort of quickly note, too, that as an anthropologist, it got me into some kind of pretty weird places uh, in terms of my um, ethnographic engagement with um, people's everyday experience of uncertainty. For example, in between talking about um, where his index was at with this kind of farmer who planted sesame and had purchased this um, boutique insurance, we had to stop work on the farm every day uh, in order to listen to his horoscope um, so that you can get a sense of like how the world of the stars is going to kind of align his fate uh, during the, the next week. And when you kind of think about it, it's absolutely kind of true that these are both like really kind of abstract forces that are shaping in really kind of tangible ways um, how, what the future might hold. So these kind of different ways of thinking about aligning with um, uncertainty are, you know, everyday experience for people and just as kind of um, they kind of coexist and they live side by side, as it were, in terms of logics of how the future, um, what the future might bring and how we forecast it, right? So the question of what is a non-market economy is really troubling for me insofar as... I love troubling. <laughs> insofar as it's really hard to think what is not related to the market because that would mean that we would need to define what is a market economy and so you know thinking of market economy as non-embedded uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense because we see all sorts of things that happen through the market and capitalist economy that are not explainable only in economic terms but they are very much embedded into social relations or happen because of social relations or are part of social relations so, you know, thinking just in terms of what is embedded or not embedded with social relations doesn't give us a whole sense of what is market versus not market. And if you think about, well, maybe it's about private ownership. Well, you know, there were markets within socialism which didn't have necessarily private ownership. So also that kind of is hard to quite understand. So I think what Carly uh, is, is getting at with her description of what doesn't fit into an economic model of social life is a, is quite a good uh, way of thinking about what is outside of the market, so to speak. This to say that kind of base risk, that, that thing left out by models of how work, the world works according to econometrics perspectives. That's an interesting perspective to use. And to think of that not as necessarily non-market, but right. rather um, as these sort something of... That, yeah, something that needs theorizing, right? Yeah, exactly. That is, that it exceeds a part of human experience that exceeds uh, the models that are used at this point in time to describe in quantitative terms often, right? Mm -hmm. And so what is that like? And some people could say, well, it's creativity. And that's certainly what people in the innovation industry think. I mean, creativity is one of the things that they are so excited about. But they also think about social good. And so for them, I think that's is really interesting is to take seriously the fact that they are convinced there is a way in which innovation ecosystems or startups can combine producing something good for society that is going to solve a problem and then also something that's sustainable in a financial sense and so it can lead to speculation. And now, you know, whether these two things can neatly fit one into the other is a different kind of question. But definitely you can see the struggle, the paradoxes there created by those um, sort of irreducible logics or experiences that clash often together. Uh, so I'd like to close with a question about writing. Carla, you've joked about how exciting the study of finance isn't for some audiences. <laughs> But one of those things that I really like about economic anthropology and other kind of fields like science and technology studies, which get into a technical world, is that the devil is necessarily in those particular details. You really have to like know the system, be able to speak the system in order to then write about it or critique it. 
So our job is to connect the multiscalar dots between a set of kind of mundane interactions and transactions and these really esoteric vocabularies about regimes of calculation, as well as these larger kind of life and death abstractions, money, value, capital. So how do you think about writing it all? What is there, I guess, which is both a question about genre, but also about technique? That's a great question, and especially because um, one of my frustrations with anthropology of finance is that often the writing is so dire. <laughs> it's just really, really difficult. It's just kind of like float off into abstract landia, and I especially find that when I uh, am assigning books to teach, and they're really interested, excited, and have seminars with students that are really into it, and then we'll just feel the like wah, 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 <laughs> and the writing gets really bad. So um, all that's to say that, yes, absolutely, writing uh, The Devil is in the Details with um, anthropology of finance. And it's really a challenge, at least for me as a writer, to think what details count um, and what details do we need to pay attention to in order to get a line of sight on um, these kind of wider financial um, processes. And that's actually guided my kind of methodology as well and kind of where do I need to be and what sort of sites do I need to kind of follow in order to get a handle on uh, some of these financial processes. And one project that I found especially kind of interesting and um, kind of useful to kind of think about those projects of writing and also of ethnographic writing, especially with this project on insurance. And this is where my, um, I think that I've, I made that comment that um, I tend to not lead with this is about insurance because <laughs> like, people flee for the doors Smug, when you, you say, you have to smuggle in the insurance. Um, as I've been kind of writing and thinking about insurance, which seems like the most boring thing in the world, that I've been working with a team of Paraguayan illustrators to make a comic book about um, this project. And that forced me, since this was something that I was really interested in doing from the get-go, to tell a visual narrative of finance and to kind of materialize these processes and to kind of shape them in a, a way that can be kind of thought of materially and visually as sequential art, that it really com compelled me as a researcher to be really intentional about kind of what perspective I was taking, literally what perspective I was taking on these sort of encounters. From what place can you see and talk through and hear and kind of listen and uh, discuss and feel these financial processes in a way that you kind of always, I always knew from the beginning would be sort of illustrated to draw those connections between scales and draw those connections between sites and actors. And it's been a especially generative to work with this team of Paraguayan uh, graphic artists because they have their own ideas about what that looks like um, and what the aesthetics of those sort of connections and scale jumps are. So it's forced me to kind of look again, as it were, um, at some of these processes and to think about um, how to draw, literally draw connections uh, between these sites and scales. So as a writer and a thinker and an ethnographer um, of finance, um, being kind of extremely intentional about um, where those processes are located and often in kind of really unexpected ways where like this insurance has taken insurance product has taken me to kind of sesame farms where I learned a whole lot about weeds and weed management and how you sort kind of valuable plants from um, unvaluable plants that you're trying to weed out to the weather stations that are full of weeds uh, and need weed management by the insurance company in order to successfully dump their weather data to produce better models, to the reinsurance companies in, um, in Zurich, in Switzerland, that are using those models in order to price risk and sell it back to uh, the local insurance brokers. So kind of figuring out how you kind of see and place and connect um, those different sites is something that's a question for writing, but also I think a methodological question. Uh, the two are connected uh, for me. Look, I think uh, I wish I were like Carly, who is so, you know, uh, out there and amazing and able to talk to everybody and, and able to weed out stuff, right? Um, I... I think my fieldwork style is sometimes a bit different, and so sometimes I, I'm, I'm less entrepreneurial in how I go about it, uh, just because my character is, I guess, different, and I feel a bit more inhibited by, you know, not intruding in people's lives. And so I always have this fear that by being out there, I'm really bothering people, and so I shouldn't really be there. 
And so sometimes that poses uh, some challenges because I've, finance is connecting a lot of dots across the globe and sometimes it's hard for me at least to go in all the places where it is. And so, you know, it's always a bit of a struggle for me to go there, uh, much more it is to write about it. I know where I should be and what I should write about. It's just, I've, I find it hard. Sometimes physically because it's just so far or you can't get access to it. In this case, a lot of people didn't want to talk about the kind of political connections they had to the regime, and and there were good reasons for it that I understood only later once the extent to which the regime was actually the regime became clear. And luckily, I didn't know all the details at the time. Otherwise, who knows what would have happened to me. So I think in that case, not being too pushy helped me and, and ensure my safety. But there is also that kind of negotiation of what do you have and how can you write about it that is a bit challenging. I wasn't trained in economics, and so I had to kind of make it up as I went, um, which I felt was a bit difficult to do, but also allowed me to think about, okay, you know, to tell this story, what kind of data would I ever need in terms of quantitative stuff? And, and once you start looking at indicators, it's a whole world, because each indicator has a social history. So it's come from this particular place to measure this specific thing. And then it's used globally as if it was self-evident. And you don't always have the understanding or time or technical capability to really weed it out, so to speak, and so to get the good data versus the bad data. So then you're kind of negotiating this whole world of approximations and trying to tell a story that is somewhat coherent. And so for me, it's really about some very specific scenes sometimes that um, are able to, to kind of tell us uh, or to illustrate a lot of these dynamics, then you kind of reconstruct uh, working backward often. And I found that, funny enough, you know, sometimes archives are extremely helpful in doing that because historically they they show the layer dimension of those those dynamics and allow you to kind of have that depth that otherwise you sometimes have a hard time capturing. And so I've had a lot of fun going to some archives, um, partly because it was the first one who ever opened those files. And so you got all sorts of weird things into it, including, you know, weird animals that were dead and, and, and etc. Um, Wait, you need to say a little bit more about that. Well, <laughs> well how yeah. large an animal are we, are we talking about? Well, mostly were flies or, you know, like yeah. little butterflies or things like that. But I won't go into the more gruesome aspects of it. Uh, except that I remember once I was looking at illiquidity in Yugoslavia and I got this file, I opened the file and, you know, there's the dead butterfly, turn the page and then there is a whole report about liquidity in Yugoslavia that the entire parliament had debated and then I look at the file and I'm like this has nothing to do with what I requested and the one goes like huh I gave you the wrong file <laughs> and then randomly just you know wrote the chapter by itself so there's that kind of certain that happens really exciting and and sometimes you just can't plan for it so you can be an excellent writer you can be an excellent field worker but if you don't stumble onto it well you, actually this brings up something that I, i'm personally really interested in because i don't talk to economists who we've uh, as carly covered before have a certain amount of like uh, i guess a bad reputation for for being boring uh, i deal with a lot of uh, my work involves engaging with a lot of scientists and bureaucrats around fire management and so I was wondering, and some people have asked me about this, how do you know when you've come across that kind of like philosopher interlocutor, mm -hmm. that one who is, who is actually going to be able to talk uh, to the kind of larger ideas somewhere between, you know, what, how an anthropologist might think or they've been trained to think? Well, in my case, the problem was which ones are you going to, you know, they, they all tried to be philosophers. <laughs> Anyways, they all had a lot to say about all sorts of things about life. And so it was always very, you know, we get to a point where like, stop talking to me. <laughs> There's so much I can't actually learn. You know, it's like, it's just, and so it's, it's a, you know, depending on the place, I guess you have a different kind of, of perspectives. But it was, I guess, a very schizophrenic thing between those who really didn't want to hang out because they felt they were threatened, those who really wanted to tell me everything about what they thought about life. And uh, maybe it's a culturally specific thing. Maybe it depends on your specific attitudes. Uh, but I found that surprisingly bureaucrats had a lot to say. Mm -hmm. And they really loved somebody who asked them, actually, what do you think about, you know, the creation of a new payment system? And so 
they couldn't tell me at the beginning because of the regime, but once the regime was gone, then they had all sorts of amazing things to tell me about how they created the first, or they sold the first bonds, the treasury bills, in fact. Yeah, and it gives you a, a sense of the kind of the lived-inness of these uh, bureaucratic regimes. Like some of my favorite interlocutors were uh, people who had worked for kind of decades in the Census Bureau um, in Paraguay, which, you know, coming at this intellectually, obviously I'm interested in uh, population data if I'm working on insurance. That's the kind of the stuff that goes into these actuarial models and that kind of produces the um, the kind of risk that is priced or the kind of pricing of risk um, for insurance. But you get, you know, a whole story about how um, kind of data evolved in Paraguay, life histories of like where they were at and why they cared about this and why the census is so important. Um, one interlocutor shared um, he still had it kind of after decades, um, the march of the census that had been composed by like the, an early director to can be played at all public events to get people excited about the census. We need um, to play that as our outro. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's very martial. Like you will feel uh. compelled to turn in that survey. Um, and so, yeah, those kind of stories that make the bureaucracy um, kind of much more than an iron cage, right? It's a kind of a lived-in sensibility and a sense of, sense of um, purpose and professionalism. And those are really kind of stories that you get um, from kind of talking with bureaucrats and kind of understanding their um, their point of view. So I'm, I'm glad that your bureaucrats also mm. uh, were kind of spilling their, their hopes and desires and, um, um, and aspirations about what life can hold within the bureaucracy. Well, on the subject of spilling our guts, uh, I think that's all we have time for. <laughs> so thanks for taking such length to share so much with us and uh, joining us in another conversation in Anthropology at Deakin. Today, we've been speaking with Dr. Carly Schuster from the ANU and Dr. Fabio Mattioli from the University of Melbourne. If you'd like to learn more about their work, you can follow Carly on Twitter at, at Carly Schuster and Fabio at F-M-P-I-N-D-A-R-I-C-O. Conversations in Anthropology at Deakin is produced by me, David Giles, Timothy Neal, uh, and with the assistance of our intern, Lachlan McKenzie, and support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University, and in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. And we're going to try and add as many partners as we can and make the outro as long as we can as the years come and grind on past us. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us about the show, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at DH Border Giles, and Tim is at TD Neal. And if you enjoyed this episode, think about giving us a review on iTunes or elsewhere. 